Okay, so uh, the talk is called Structure of Visual Content. I sort of have a lot of content to deliver, and I also try to not uh, deluge you too much, and um, we'll, we'll get through what we can here. Um, basically, here's the outline. And, um, I'm going to start by talking about a pro what I'm going to call a problem of visual content. It's really just a problem for me, and I want to know what the answer is. Um, I'm going to talk about a, a set of scenes approach to modeling uh, visual content. Uh, then I'm going to introduce a sort of a new idea of modeling visual content in terms of a certain kind of feature map. Um, and then um, do some summarizing and um, put a bow on it at the end. So that's where we're headed. Okay, so um, this talk really started when I defended my dissertation, and you know, the, sometimes your advisors ask you a hard question on the last day when you think you've finished everything, and then that question like eats at you for the next four years. So, um, oh, <laughs> at that time, one of my advisors asked me, "Well, so you're working on this theory about pictures, but you know, what do you say about computer?" Uh, images that are on computers that are stored in some kind of linguistic format, like binary or something more interesting than binary. And I really didn't have an answer to that question, and that's really what's motivated this set of questions. So I'm thinking that there is a, a wide variety of representational types that intuitively seem to be visual representations. Pictures are most obvious example, but um, computers seem to be able to store um, some kind of images, and even if they're not displaying them on the screen, they're still storing the image. So we, and the, some of those images are visual images. So we want to know in what sense are they visual images. And then there's a wide variety of visual style representations in the brain. So we've got perceptual representations, mental imagery, uh, visual memory. And um, for some of these, they seem to clearly have a picture-like format. So pictures themselves obviously have a picture-like format. Um, seems like early perceptual processing is very retinotopic and picture-like. But as you head up you know, into the visual cortex, things get less and less picture-like. And um, it, it starts looking like, well, maybe this is more like a computer graphic. And certainly, there's like a big debate about the format of what mental imagery is. And so I wanted to identify a sense in which we could call these all visual representations absent having settled the debate about what the format of mental imagery or visual memory or any of those things are. Uh, so that's my goal. And my approach here is think, well, all of these kinds of representations express some kind of content. And there's something common to this content. It's visual content. Uh, so um, I think like Dominic's pursued a similar kind of strategy. And so um, you know, lots of people have thought there's something distinctively visual about certain kinds of content that could be expressed by a wide variety of formats. Um, and so I'm going to try to give a proposal about what that is. As a kind of just preview to when to pay attention and stuff, I won't actually give my answer to that until the end of the talk. I have to give a bunch of filler before that. So we'll, we'll get there. Um, so my first goal is to identify what I'm going to call a transmodal concept of visual content. I'm just thinking of those, all those different forms of representations as different modalities, so something that goes across them. Uh, okay, to get there, I'm going to have to think about uh, different kinds of content structure. 
and I'm going to take inspiration from philosophy of language. So um, what I'm about to say may not seem immediately relevant, but we'll sort of get there. Um, so I want to remind you of a distinction from philosophy of language, two visions of what propositions are. And so that was uh, brought up in the last talk. This, you know, dovetails very nicely with Daisy's talks. Um, so broadly, people think there are two types of propositions, unstructured propositions and structured propositions. Unstructured propositions are those like Stolnikarian things, sets of worlds, very kind of simple, flat representation of content. Um, and then you think like the proposition expressed by a sentence on this view is just the set of worlds in which the sentence is true. Structured propositions, there's sort of different kinds, Russellian, Fergian, blah, 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 but I'm going to take Russellian propositions as my kind of canonical case. And they're essentially language-like structures that instead of having words in them have some kind of contentful elements like reference or, or in the Phrygian sense, senses at the nodes of the structure. So just to give you a very concrete example, here's a syntax, you know, my f fake syntax, syntactic tree for this sentence. Uh, Lucia runs to King's Cross. Um, and then the idea is for the Russellian proposition, it has the same tree structure, but the things at the nodes are not words, they're actual objects and properties and functions. So it'd be like, that's Lucia, that's property of running, that's whatever two means, some kind of abstract function, and that's King's Cross. Um, so, um, let's see, before I get, so I, keeping in mind that distinction between unstructured and structured linguistic propositions will help you understand what I'm getting at, which is I'm going to introduce a notion of unstructured visual content and structured visual content that are supposed to be the analogs of, of these things in the fossil language. Um, so in terms of this little graph, you can see unstructured content, structured content. For linguistic content, we have sets of worlds and Russellian propositions. Um, then what I'm going to be talking about is visual content. Um, I'm going to introduce something that I, I'm really not going to spend a whole lot of time on. I hope it's not too new, is this idea that we could model visual content by sets of scenes. Um, and then what will be more new is suggesting that we now model it in terms of what I'm going to call a projective feature map. And so I'm going to spend a long time explaining what I mean by a projective feature map. Um, okay, so my two goals. First, identify this general concept of visual content. Second, identify a concept of structured visual content. Those are my feature maps. So we'll, we'll get there. Um, so the, the dialect's a little complicated, so let me just give you a full outline so you know exactly what's coming here. I've just introduced this problem of visual content, which is that some visual representations, i.e. like mental imagery or late perception, computer graphics, lack a pictorial format, so we should look to content instead of format to identify what's visual about them. Um, next, I'm going to look at uh, visual content as this unstructured set of scenes. I'm going to observe that content as a set of scenes, I mean, it does a nice job for giving some modeling parameters, but content as sets of scenes expressed by some non-visual representations. In addition, there are some visual representations which don't express set of scenes. Put those together, it's not a very good starting place for thinking about what uh, visual content is. Um, Next, uh, I'm going to introduce this notion of feature maps. And I'm going to say that structured visual content can be analyzed as those. And then finally, I'm going to um, argue that transmodal visual content, that general visual content, 
is any unstructured content that can be expressed by a um, projective feature map. So that's the that's really the idea of the talk in the fourth part. So I'll get there. By the way, what's my end time? Who's um, just so I keep track? Yeah, because you started late. It's For, oh. five to one. Okay. Um, so I want to introduce this idea that we could think about visual content as sets of scenes. In my previous work, that's this is what I've pursued this, and the ideas are really inspired from lots of people working in uh, philosophy of perception. Chalmers had this stuff, and Ben Blumson has um, made this a little more precise for pictorial content in particular, and so I've elaborated on that. Want to start with this idea of a scene? So it's, it's just a a term of art, don't engage your intuitive notion of a scene too much. It's a pair of a possible world and a viewpoint. Um, possible world is the thing you're familiar with. A viewpoint is not a viewer or a psychological notion. It's just a geometrical point in space that has an orientation. That's all it is, just an oriented point in space. So you could think of these like centered worlds, if you're familiar with the Lewisian framework, but you could just think, you know, it's a world, and then there's a thing looking at it. That's, that's a scene. Um, so diagrammatically, I could think, well, you know, here's my world, this thing. There might be a, uh, this looking from overhead. There's like a cube in it. And then here's my viewpoint. It's this point, and it's oriented in a certain direction, uh, as if like a geometrical eye. Think Hyman's idea of an objective eye. Next, I'm going to say that pictures are accurate or inaccurate relative to a scene. Okay, um, and this is the counterpart of uh, truth, true or false relative to a world for sentences. Um, and so you can see this has a sort of intuitive application. You could just think, here's our picture. I like simple pictures. So stick with pictures of cubes. Uh, here's our picture, and um, you think, well, this picture could be accurate at this scene <laughs> because from this viewpoint, that cube would look just like that. So this would be a, a scene where that picture could be accurate. Um, and just to flush that out a little, you could say, like, OK, here are three cases. That's the one we just saw where it's accurate. Here we could see, in this case, uh, it's not accurate. Because even though, let's see, the world is the same here, the viewpoint is in a different place. And so the viewpoint doesn't allow it to be accurate. This one's also not accurate. Here we held the viewpoint fixed. But we changed the world in such a way. Obviously, there's no round thing there. So again, not accurate at that. Um, OK, so now with that in mind, we can introduce this notion of just unstructured content. So we could say uh, the unstructured content of a picture, P, is the set of worlds at which it is, uh, that, sorry, the set of scenes at which it is accurate. And that little thing underneath is just saying the same thing in set theory. Um, so, um, to illustrate, let's take this picture and then imagine I've drawn six here of the infinitely many possible scenes. Just imagine this is diagram stretches out through logical space. And we think, okay, some of these are in the content and some aren't. And we'd think that this one, that's in the content because it could be a small cube seen from close up. Uh, or it could be a larger cube seen from further away. Could also be a, a larger cube seen from farther away with something occluded behind it. So all of those scenes would be in the content. 
but all of these ones would not be. You know, it can't be a picture of a sphere, can't be a picture of a cube seen from the side, um, and it couldn't be a picture of a large cube from close up. So there's going to be, you know, a, you could think, and this way of thinking about content, a content makes a cut in logical space, it includes all a bunch of scenes, and it excludes infinitely many others. Okay, and the the ones that it includes, what they have in common is the content of the picture. Um, so what have we got here? So on one hand, I, well, I said, you know, this is a model of pictorial content, and it has some promises to it. It's, it's conducive for giving a formal semantics for pictures because it's, you know, a precise model and it's comparable to linguistic models, so we can use some of the same tools to think about it, think about entailment and, uh, and so on. Um, and uh, it's, it has that quality that could be extended to other visual modes, because in principle, um, something that's not a picture could express a content like this, something like a computer graphic, because there's nothing, I haven't really said anything about the structure, I've just said of the representation, I've just said something about what the content is like. Um, and um, in previous work, you know, for myself, I've just thought about focused on pictures, which have all the structure, and I thought, you know, the content gets its structure from the picture and the semantics of the picture-content relation. But if we want to know, like, what is visual content, this gives us a pretty unsatisfactory answer. Um, so two issues. One is it's really insufficiently restrictive because not all sets of scenes are um, visual contents. You know, I could just arbitrarily pick a bunch of scenes that had nothing in common, nothing in common that we think of as a picture, like, you know, one that featured the viewpoint on this chair, another that viewpoint on this projector, put them together. That would be a set of scenes, but it's nothing like the content of a picture. Um, so it doesn't really get us narrow enough to the kind of content we want to look at. Second kind of problem is a problem that's really familiar to people who've worked on possible world semantics, which is possible world semantics is, is not good at getting impossible stuff. Um, and the you know, motivation for however much you buy it is that worlds themselves always have to be consistent, so you can't, if you want to represent an inconsistency, um, like we were just talking about in Daisy's talk, then that's not going to show up in your, your set of possible worlds will be empty, and that won't look good. Um, so somehow we want to have, so this is the problem of there are non-visual representations that have, could have sets of scenes as their contents. And down here, there are visual representations that don't have sets of scenes as their contents. Both of these are problems that we want to overcome. I'm going to focus most on the first one. I'll have just a few remarks about the second, but um, <laughs> ask me about it, questions. That was to remind us some impossible images. Um, I should, just a kind of side note, you know, if you take a very um, thin notion of visual content, something like, um, like what John's called bare bones content, then these kind of images propose, they make no problem for you. But if you have a richer notion, a notion which captures the sense in which this is a contradictory image, then you have trouble modeling it. And, and I want to I aim at that richer, that richer notion. Um, let me actually just quickly pause for clarification questions, since I know there's some te technical details. Yeah. Yeah. So um, could you go back to go back a step? Yeah. Uh, not that far. Yeah. yeah. 
So the insufficiently, you, you, you talked about, I just wondered what exactly you meant when you, you could put arbitrary sets together. I just mean that uh, you know, a scene is literally just a pair of a world and a viewpoint. And so I could arbitrate, you know, I could pick uh, this world with a viewpoint here, and then I could pick a, you know, a different possible world with a viewpoint pointing at something completely different, put them together in a set, I've got a set of scenes. But it's not going to be a scene, it's not going to be a set of scenes that's expressed by any picture. Okay, all right. Yeah. Any other techie stuff that I'd like to make sure everyone's on board? Now we get to the sort of gnarlier bit. So that's we're projective feature map. So uh, I'm going to introduce these in a sort of perhaps painfully methodical way, um, building up from a simple case to all simple what I think of as a basic feature map, and getting all the way up to what I'm going to call a projective feature map. And then there's further complications which I'm going to spare you. Um, there's all kinds of precedent for thinking about feature maps. It, uh, at least since Mar, it's just all over the vision literature. Um, and so the, I'm, not, I'm not claiming any originality by introducing feature maps as a way of thinking about visual content. Um, and it's been all over the philosophy literature in different ways. Um, Hoagland talks about something like this. Ty talks about something like this in the context of mental imagery. Uh, it's kind of implicit in Casadi and Varzi's semantics for maps. Um, there's some uh, more obscure papers on picture semantics that I feel like I'm maybe one of six people who have worked through these really carefully. Uh, but if you, <laughs> they also have something like this, and and it has some some comparisons with Peacock scenario content. If you're curious about how what I'm going to present differs from any of these, I'm happy to talk about that at the questions. And I don't think it is identical to any of them. Um, and one thing that even though the uh, vision scientists you know, rely heavily on feature maps in the characteristic style of, of scientists, there, there's not a lot of um, logical rigor in the way they're used and elaborated. And they're, never, they're rarely generalized to capture all the cases. So I'm interested in coming up with a general definition in the sort of spirit of like Lewis general semantics. We think, OK, this is a feature map. We can do everything we want with this. And so we're going to be headed down that path. Um, OK, so I'm going to start with what I'm calling, you know, very poetically, a type 1 structure. And uh, this is what I think of as a basic feature map. OK, this is the, the minimum criteria for a feature map. Um, these are abstract structures. So you should really think of them. When, remember when I said Russellian propositions are these abstract structures with things in them? These are abstract structures. What kind of structures are they? Well, they're an array, some kind of, some kind of 2D array divided into cells. I'm going to always use examples where there are finitely many cells, but no problem with infinitely many. And then um, each of these cells is linked to this complex of objects and properties. It's linked by, if you want to think of a formal function, you know, if you want to think about this as a formal structure, you think there's a function that links them to these complexes. So this function takes every single cell in this structure and associates it within a complex. What's the complex? Well, the complex uh, has two parts. Each one has an object component and a set of properties, okay? Um, and so I call the object sub f for that function, property sub f for that function. 
Um, that's it. That's, a, that's your feature map. The, there's objects and features associated with those objects. Now, it, I can't quite stop there because I need to tell you under what conditions such a structure would be true or accurate. And so that, it's in, to make these at all semantic and not just sort of random mathematical structures, we have to tell them about how they would correspond to the world. So here is the definition of accuracy for one of these type one structures. And so as I elaborate the structures, I'll also incrementally update the accuracy conditions. So this says that a type one structure S1 is accurate at a world W, if and only if, for every single cell in here and looking at each cell for all the properties F in the property part of that complex, the object associated with that cell has each property associated with that cell at that world, okay? Um, so that will give you a nice set of worlds where every object has that property. Um, so I'm gonna use, this is a little bit naughty, but I'm putting a picture here that's like a digital picture of a cube. Don't think that these structures are pictures, but I just, since they kind of have a nice matching with pictures, it's going to help juice the intuitions here. So here's a specific example. Think, okay, if we were giving a, uh, uh, a feature map for this picture, we'd think, okay, here's one cell. I might associate that with a certain object, like just a little a point on, that, on the edge of that thing, and associate it with some features, like it's a point and it lies on an edge. Um, then I might pick uh, you know, another point, that's object two, also associated with the property point, it lies on a non-edge, and it's filled in white, okay? So now we apply our definition of truth, and what you're gonna get is something like this, um, elaborated out. You're gonna think, structure one is accurate at a world W, if and only if, and then we're gonna have as many lines in what we write afterwards as there are cells. So we're gonna say, first object one is a point, lies on an edge at W, and object two is a point, lies on a non-edge, and is white at W, and so on for every single cell. Um, good. Uh, I won't stop for clarifications for everyone, but since this is the first structure, let me just make sure everyone's on board. Any clarification questions about type, this type one structure? Yeah. Is the feature map the include the function, or is it just the Includes the function, yeah. The feature map is the array plus the function, yep. Um, if you like to think about it formally, you just think the array is like a set of points, has a distance metric on it, and then the function associates it with these complexes. Um, okay, type two structure. Now we, yeah, John? Each cell gets a different object. Um, each cell, yeah, I mean, not necessarily, but typically. Yeah, I would expect so. Uh, there's a bunch of choice points in here that if you're having a, a richer theory, you'd fill in. A type two structure is elaborated in the following way. Now, we don't focus just on cells. We also focus on regions. Um, and so both cells and regions can be associated with things. Uh, just give me a sec. So then we're thinking, okay, so here I could associate this cell with a certain object, but I could also associate this whole region with another object and there's no restriction on them overlapping, so that's, that's perfectly fine. Um, and then there's a corresponding, we're going to advance the, the definition of accuracy in the following way. 
So you have type two structure, S2 is accurate at world W if and only if, for all defined regions G in S2, then for every property F associated with, with each region, the object associated with that region has all those properties at W. Um, there's a, a natural um, restriction to make here, which is that every single cell is a region. Um, and so I would endorse that, that, uh, that axiom. Um, and you can, uh, this actually, it's at this point, if you wanted to enforce uh, Fodor's picture principle, you could also, uh, that, would, that would be basically a restriction on the relationship between regions and their denotations. Yep. Yeah, I, I have a clarification question, in fact, to, to the previous slide. So yep. How this, this one? Yes. Yep. Uh, how do you select the properties that, that get associated with it? Oh, yeah, so... More precisely, why is there no indication as to the coordinates or, or position? Uh, we're getting there. We're getting to coordinates. So for now, we're no coordinates. But... Um, but notice, you know, what I'm doing is really just giving you the, the blueprint for a structure, and so uh, there'll be hard questions about how to fill them in in particular cases, and I want to just make sure that whatever you think visual content might be, you could fill it in, but we'll talk about coordinates. Um, okay, so here's our type two structure, is again, running the example. We've got one little cell that still denotes a point lying on an edge, but this whole thing now that's object two, you could think that's a whole surface. Um, and you know, has the property of being square, perhaps the property of being white. Um, and I could have other regions, like I could have a region that covered this whole area, and that might have the property of being a cube, um, and so on. There's, again, no problem with overlap. So uh, now, feeding this through the accuracy rule, we get something like object one is a point, lies on an edge at W, and Object two is a surface, it's square, it's white, at W, and so on for every single region that we pick. Um, and um, again, there'll be potentially infinite regions that we're dealing with here. All right, now we move on to type three structures. So we're, as I say, methodically building up. We've got our array. We've got our regions and our cells. All that's the same. Now the changes are made over on what the associated complexes are. So we've got objects as before, sets of properties as before, and now I introduce a category for what I'm calling viewpoint relations, VP relations. And uh, if you've kind of gotten into the gnarly details of uh, any kind of sort of analysis of perception or, or picture semantics, uh, relations to viewpoint are a major deal. Um, and um, there are all kinds of relations to viewpoint that we're interested in. Probably the most salient ones are distance. So uh, how far is an object from the viewpoint, from the point of perspective? Uh, angle, I'm gonna get to angle in a second. Um, but it turns out there's all kinds of relations that covertly are viewpoint relations, even though we might not have thought of them that way. So um, edges, I mean, of course there are edges like this, that are just intrinsic features of objects. But uh, the edge that you draw around a sphere is an occlusion edge. It's not, a, it's not like a crease in the object, and it's only an edge relative to a viewpoint. So lots of these things actually end up showing up in these viewpoint relations. Um, so now I think we have 
basically two things to deal with. And we now finally are starting to engage with the notion of a scene, which is a world and a viewpoint. Before we've been dealing with worlds, now we've got them both. So we think this type three structure is accurate at a world and a viewpoint, aka a scene, a, view, a viewpoint-centered world, if and only if, for every region in S3, first of all, all the properties associated with each region are instantiated by the object associated by that region. Second of all, for every relation in the viewpoint relations associated with a given cell, that object bears that relation to the viewpoint at W. Okay, so let me run through the concrete, more concrete case. So now we've got, let's say, object, and I just stuck with distances here. This object is a point and an edge, and the, the, it's associated with the distance relation being 3.1 units away. So just 3.1 units away, that's the relation. The next one is an object, the surface, square it's white, and it's associated with the distance relation being 2.9 units away. And notice this sort of makes intuitive sense because this thing is receding in space from, from this one. Um, run that through the definition, and we're going to get something like this. Object one is a point, lies on an edge, and is distance 3.1 from V at W. Um, object two is a surface, it's square, it's white, and it's distance 2.9 from V at W. So just to get clear, it's like, you know, I'm thinking the viewpoint is right here, and then I'm evaluating the structure, and when the structure is saying is, oh, that object is 2.9 units from this point. This other thing is 3.1 units from this point. Um, so we're evaluating it relative to a viewpoint that helps us flesh in what commitments it's making about the world. Um, clarification here. Those are, yeah. Is the viewpoint perpendicular from the center of your array? Is that correct? Um, it's optional. Okay. Yeah, it's optional. So the, you, for different kinds of of considerations, you might want to vary that. But it's a, at the same time, that's a natural assumption. Okay, so now we're finally going to get to the projective part, and now getting to your question about um, angles and positions. So, um, many, as many people have observed, you know, going back to um, at least sort of Renaissance thinkers, I think far before then. Uh, Pictorial representation is perspectival, and it's perspectival in a way that corresponds to um, projection of some kind. Um, and linear projection is this sort of classic, like Western Renaissance cases, but there's all kinds of projection. All involves some notion of perspective. Um, and people have recognized that this is sort of essential to understanding how pictorial content is structured. And, you know, I think very much of John's work here, where it says, you know, we should think of projection in some sense as at the core of defining pictorial content, and I agree. So, so far I haven't said anything about that, and now I wanna introduce that. So, um, projection is, you know, I won't go into it, but just to sort of remind you, think, it's this process where we take some kind of objects like, um, like that, and relative to a viewpoint, I guess my nomenclature isn't entirely consistent here, um, and we think, okay, I, I take a bunch of lines of projection from that object and project the image onto a picture plane 
and I get you know a nice picture. Um, and if I vary where the viewpoint is, I get a different kind of projection, like that. Um, and that's just a totally you know algorithmic process to go from what's in the world via viewpoint to this image. It also kind of expresses you know intuitively this image is perspectival in some sense, and that corresponds to this notion that it's produced relative to this viewpoint um, from the scene. Okay, so now we want to integrate this uh, notion of projective perspectivalness into one of these feature maps. Um, and to do that, I'm going to ask that you think of the, this abstract array as truly a two-dimensional surface and position it relative to a viewpoint in space. And then imagine all of those projection lines going out, each one passes through one cell. Then looking at this, we could think, oh, actually, you know, we can identify the angle at which this ray is, leave, is passing through, through the plane. Um, so when I think, okay, theta one, that's, that is theta, right? That's what my Greek letters are. <laughs> theta one, that's that, that's that angle. Theta two, that's that angle. Theta three, that's that angle. And notice that each of these is leaving the thing at a slightly different angle. What's, what's uh, common about them is that they all determine an angle that converges on a viewpoint um, by projection. So that's, that's the crucial thing for me. These are not random angles. They're all determined by a single viewpoint. But now, okay, we've got all these angles. We can just treat those as features on the feature map. Um, and the important thing is that they're all going to be tied down to, you know, at least sort of hypothetically tied down to this single viewpoint. Um, so now what we do is we take our structure just like before, and finally, this is the final structure. You won't have to listen to any more, any more um, of these, <laughs> of these uh, feature maps. These, this is the projective feature map. It's got the array, it's got the regions, it's got objects in the complexes, properties, viewpoint relations as before, and now it has a special kind of viewpoint relation, which is an angle, and it has to have that. So the, this part is not optional. It has to have that angular relation. Um, and each, there's a little bit, at least each cell will have an angle. Whether the regions also have angles is a kind of subtler issue. Okay, so this thing is starting to look messy. You can see why I... <laughs> built up to this definition in stages. But again, we're saying this type 4 structure is accurate a world and a viewpoint, a scene. Um, and then we've got our first condition that all these properties have to be satisfied by this object. And our second condition that all of these viewpoint relations have to be satisfied by the object and the viewpoint in relation to one another. And now we're adding this last thing. Um, which is this angle, and the constraint is that each cell is associated with an angle, and that angular relation is determined by projection in the way that I just described. Um, so if I, if I merely included angular relations but didn't require that they be determined by projection, then you could get this situation. Imagine this, the array. You know, one sticking out there, one pointing down there, one headed in another direction, one headed like that, just, you know, a random sort of hedgehog array of, of angles. And that's clearly not how we interpret a visual image. You think, you know, as you look up at 
<laughs> we've got these funny images in this room. So it's like, you know, you look up here and that's pointing up in one direction. That's pointing up in the other direction. You know, in the middle is pointing towards the middle. And so you want to capture the coherence of all the angled points across the image. Okay. Um, um, and now, so we just integrate these right into these viewpoint relations. They are, after all, relations. They're angular relations between, um, um, between the, the object in question and the viewpoint. Um, or you, there's, let's call, we'll stick with that. Um, so we feed that through our accuracy condition. We're going to get something like this. Object one is a point, lies on an edge, has a certain distance from the viewpoint, and it lies at a certain angle from the viewpoint um, at W. Object two is a point, lies on an edge. Oh, sorry, lies on a non-edge. It's a distance 2.9 from the viewpoint, and it lies on a different angle relative to the viewpoint, and so on for every single cell and region. We just continue on. Um, so this is actually, you know, when you're talking about um, how big is the set of propositions in Daisy's talk, in this case, the, 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 if you want to express this content in sentences, the number of sentences would just be equal to the number of regions that are significant here. Um, and if it were a continuous image, there would be infinitely many. Um, okay, so now we have our structure. This is what I'm calling a projective feature map. And this is really um, what I'm thinking of as my counterpart to the Russellian proposition. So Russellian proposition was this you know, Christmas tree that has objects and properties hanging off of it. Now what I've got is something more like, I don't really know what the right metaphor is, but you know, it's a big checkerboard, and it's got all these uh, objects and properties dangling off the various cells and regions. Um, and so I think, you know, it makes a nice comparison. It's, it is quite like the Russellian proposition in some sense. It's a structure that has similar components, but it's, its structure is very different. Uh, two issues that I haven't covered here um, and that will make the whole thing messier, and I won't go into them, but you can think about how problematic they are. One is that um, one is the problem of translucency and overlapping objects. So at a single point, you might have several objects. Um, and so you might have to associate multiple complexes with single cells. Uh, and then even gnarlier problem is problem of relations between cells. So um, at least in, in vision science, it's believed that you know, a big part of perceptual content is relations. So uh, you don't merely identify that something is 3.1 units away from you. You determine that one thing is farther away from one than another, even if you don't know how far. Um, and so to get those relations to work, we have to start putting sort of connections between cells and regions. That introduces all kinds of formal complexities. That for another day. We can use these structures now to really uh, directly model what's going on in, say, a, in, I say I won't talk about impossible images, but just you know, a brief note. There's no problem with modeling these impossible images um, because we think, oh, this thing we can just think, you know, there's, this corresponds to a feature map, and it identifies a bunch of edges, and it also identifies distances of various things, and it's just that 
those distances aren't all consistent. But that's, that's fine. There's, there was never any constraint that all of these things had to be consistent or realistic. You, they, can be, they can clash. I mean, of course, in a nice picture without incompatibilities, they will all be consistent. But in principle, they don't have to be. Um, okay, so now I want to come, now we're on the last page of this handout. Um, I guess this talk is a little shorter than I anticipated, but we'll, there'll be time for questions. Um, so now I want to come back to the issue of structured and unstructured content. So recall that I made this distinction at the beginning from borrowed from philosophy of language between two kinds of propositions that are unstructured propositions, sets of worlds, structured propositions, Russellian propositions. Okay, now we have counterpart distinction for visual contents. We've got unstructured visual contents and structured visual contents. Our unstructured contents, visual contents, are sets of scenes. Um, and then we think, in that sense, the content expressed by a picture P is the set of scenes at which P is true. Our structured visual contents are projective feature maps. And in this sense, picture-like structure, they're picture-like structures with objects and properties at the notes. So now we have counterpart for those, for those uh, concepts from linguistics. Okay. Finally, I can get to the punchline of the talk, which is this slide. Uh, uh, so this is the key idea, and this is the trick to being able to explain the way in which we have a general notion of visual content that cuts across different modalities. And so let me just read this through and explain what I have in mind. The notion is, the idea is, an unstructured content C of, you know, I haven't told you anything about C yet. It's some content C. It's visual, if and only if, there's some projective feature map S such that C equals the set of scenes at which S is accurate. Okay? So the thought is, to just play it out, Let's say I had, uh, you gave me a, like a long line of code, something you know, from a computer, and you want to say, no, is this content visual or not? I'd say, well, okay, um, uh, first of all, uh, we'll, we'll assume that it, is, uh, it specifies a relationship between a world and a viewpoint. That's a background condition. But still, we don't know if it's visual. It could be any kind of relation. And then I look at the set of all worlds and viewpoints that satisfy that, that long line of code or that long sentence, whatever it is. Um, okay, now I've got uh, an unstructured content. Now I want to know, is this visual or not? Well, I go and check, is there a projective feature map that I could find that would express that set of scenes? And if I can find one, then I'm guaranteed, yes, this is a visual content. It's the kind of thing that's expressed by a projective feature map. But if I don't find one, um, then I'm thinking, no, this isn't really visual. So, I mean, imagine that the, the line of code um, says, um, um, I didn't really come up with a good negative example. Um, Um, you know, at this world, you know, to take um, Fodor's kind of stalking horse, say, you know, at world W, V is Granny's favorite point. 
So that's, you know, this point. Okay, that expresses a relationship between a viewpoint and a world. And it would cut it, you know, that would isolate a set of worlds and viewpoints. But it wouldn't correspond to any projective feature map, right? And it wouldn't have that nice characteristic. Similarly, you could think like, maybe I get one that um, assigns a bunch of distances and assigns a bunch of properties to objects, but it doesn't put them in, um, in an ang the angular relations that I like, you know, the angular relations that are unified at a viewpoint. Again, that's not going to be visual. I mean, there's something kind of spatial about it, like it's talking about distances relative to a viewpoint and locating things in space, but we should all be familiar with the idea that there are spatial descriptions that aren't visual. And so for this to be visual, it really is going to have to be expressible by some uh, feature map. So that's, that's really the key idea. So coming back to this, think, okay, I can unify these contents by thinking, you know, pictures, computer graphics, perception, mental imagery, visual memory, all of these express content that corresponds to some projective feature map. Um, and now, you know, at the beginning I said intuitively these are all visual representations. We could catch that out by saying a representation is visual if and only if the unstru its unstructured content is visual in that sense. So we could kind of get these integrated definitions of what it is for a content to be visual, an unstructured content, what it is for a representation to be visual. Um, I want to bring up one last point which kind of raises some interesting, uh, interesting questions about the relationship between visuality and iconicity with the perhaps surprising conclusion that these two things come apart. Um, and so this conclusion has sort of been forced on me by years of thinking about this because I, I wanted to think. I've always thought that visual representations were a subset of iconic representations. Um, and now I don't really think that anymore. So this is why. I think, okay, I had this definition. A representation is visual if its unstructured content is visual. Um, but now let's think again about this. So you've got this like long line of code or a long, you know, a, a long description that expresses a visual content. That thing doesn't seem to be an iconic representation in the classic sense. I mean, yes, it expresses the content, a visual content, but it is just, it is on its face symbolic, and you could assign propositional structure to it. Propositional in not in the daisy sense, but in the sense, um, like Liz is gonna, I don't know if you're gonna defend it today. If you're gonna pretend that you have defended <laughs> um, where you think propositional structure is more linguistic. So we might ask, well, what is unique about pictures and those parts of perception which are really pictorial, things that have pic pictorial structure that are both iconic and visual? And the truth is, I don't really know, and I've got a definition here, but it's completely speculative. So first of all, they, if a, for a representation to be iconically visual in the style of a picture, the unstructured content better be visual, that's taken for granted. And second of all, I'll read what I've got there, but there better be some kind of match between the, the format of the representation itself and the projective feature map. Uh, I don't know what that match is, but it better not be the kind of loose match that you get between a long description and a feature map. And so what I've written here is, you know, roughly, the structure P bears a natural, question mark, isomorphic, 
I'm prejudiced against using the word isomorphic. So it doesn't mean hardly anything here, but there's a natural relation to the structured visual content of P. Um, and that seems to be the case for pictures and, as I say, for, for perhaps early retinotopic vision. So we get this kind of picture of the relationship between iconic representations and visual representations. Um, of course, we all know there are iconic representations that aren't visual in the sense, you know, and they're not perspectival, you know, in the sense that, that well, like Dominic has talked about, or, you know, that we're interested in here. And I'm thinking of like diagrams, graphs, sculptures, or maybe uh, we could debate about that, but they don't seem to be perspectival in the relevant sense. Those are all iconic. Then we've got cases in the middle. They're both iconic and visual. Here I have in mind pictures. Uh, I think maps belong to this, but we could debate about that. Um, and um, as I say, early retinotopic vision. Finally, we've got in this case, computer graphics and then all of these cases that are open questions like the format of late perception, of mental imagery, of visual memory. Um, but at least we think these are theoretical possibilities that could, they could be out here. Um, so I hope uh, you know, my two goals were first identify a notion of visual content that's transmodal, I've proposed one, and identify a concept of structured visual content, the counterpart of Versalian propositions for pictures or for visual representations in general. And um, I've given you that. So thank you very much.